on the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry. I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919, 1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. At six o'clock, his company in um, Dubai rang me and told me that they had been taken. And um, so then, you know, it was just, you know, like a bomb had dropped in our house. And I went and woke our boys up and told them what had happened. And I was trying to speak and I was hysterical. Father of three, husband and internationally acclaimed mechanical engineer Robert Petter is currently in a 14-foot cell with 22 other inmates in a prison in Iraq. The Australian citizen, who lives in Roscommon with his wife and three kids, was allegedly lured to Baghdad for a business trip when he was arrested without charge and imprisoned. An Australian man being held without charge in an Iraqi prison had to wait two weeks to see a doctor, despite experiencing major health issues. Robert Pether is an engineer who is the victim of a contractual dispute between his company and the Iraqi Central Bank and has been held for more than 50 days without bail. His Irish wife, Desiree, says Robert is now extremely concerned about his situation. For the last two weeks, he just will not engage in conversation about what will happen when he gets out. So he's losing hope. Desiree is making a desperate appeal to the Department of Foreign Affairs to bring Robert home to his family. I just really feel that a public condemnation of this action will prevent any Irish engineers from ending up in the same position. Today, Desiree McCarthy speaks to us from her home in Elfin, County Roscommon, about her husband's experience in an Iraqi prison and the devastating effect it's had on her family. I'm Denise Callanan and you're listening to In Focus, the current affairs podcast from independent.ie. So Desiree, how are you? How are you feeling right now? It's a struggle all the time. Um, I try to sort of be upbeat and positive and then something will hit me or I'll pass through the dining room door where we've got a picture of him up on the wall and then that's it. (laughs) I'm a mess again. And just to start from the start, Desiree, can you tell me a little bit about Robert, your relationship and your family? We're from Australia and we bought a house over here 18 months ago. Um, The boys have been at school here for the last six years. Robert and I um, have been together for 20 years nearly. We met when he came into my office in Sydney and to fix some air conditioning because I was having a tantrum on the phone to his company on a Friday afternoon that my new air conditioning system wasn't working. And he was in the area, so he dropped in and we just started chatting and we were really good friends for a long time. And and then we decided to hang out one Easter long weekend as friends and just something changed. And 
you know, we're absolute the other half of each other and we've been in the Middle East for 10 years with the kids. We've got our two boys and then we adopted our daughter from Ethiopia uh, while we were over in the Middle East and um, she's eight now. And our family is really close and the kids absolutely adore Rob. He's an awesome dad. And even though he's away a lot, we would talk 10 times, 20 times a day in just a message back and forward while he would be in Iraq or anywhere else. And in the evenings he'd ring and he would read a story to Nala on the phone um, and chat with her about what she's invented or what she's doing at the time. And she's he's always making time for the boys as well. Robert works in the Middle East. He specialises in construction of specialised buildings, so hospitals, labs, space stations, um, and now a bank in Iraq. He's been working on that project for the last four years, and it's um, in an, a secure area, working for the government, a secure villa that they live in, secure drivers to and from the airport, so pretty much the same as any embassy that's in those countries. And uh, everything's been going very, very well. Robert runs the project. Uh, he's the head engineer and uh, has managed to keep it going even through the last 12 months through, um, through a global pandemic. But he's been away from us a lot because of that. Um, we haven't actually seen him since January, the first week. So tell me a little bit about the beginning of April, that first week and what actually happened. The last week of March, he was in Dubai and they were trying to um, settle a contractual dispute with the client, the Central Bank of Iraq. And he'd been liaising with them back and forward. And the governor himself, who Robert knew because he wasn't the governor at the beginning of the project, rang Robert and personally invited him back to resolve the issues and assured him that all outstanding invoices from September last year until um, April had been paid and the money had been transferred and approved. So Robert went back to Iraq with his colleague, who's Egyptian, to meet with the governor and sort the issues. They arrived on the 1st and worked through to the 7th, and then they went to a meeting in the morning with the Central Bank of Iraq engineers, sat with them in that meeting, and then the governor came in at the appointed time of 2 o'clock, said something in Arabic, and then 12 security officers came in behind him and arrested them and took them away. I didn't hear from him all afternoon and then by the evening I started to get really worried. I messaged his colleague who was my other point of contact and he wasn't answering either. So then I really started to get worried. And then the next morning at six o'clock, his company in um, Dubai rang me and told me that they had been taken. And um, so then, you know, it was just, you know, like a bomb had dropped in our house and I went and woke our boys up and told them what had happened and I was trying to speak and I was hysterical and, you know, they're just like sitting up in bed dazed and um, then I got onto the embassy and, you know, trying to work out what to do. We didn't know where they were for the first four days until the Egyptian embassy found them. So when did you first get to speak to Robert, Desiree, when all this um, happened? I didn't get to speak to Robert for nearly three weeks when the Egyptian embassy went in and did a humanitarian um, visit with their um, with his Egyptian colleague and they gave Robert the phone so he could talk to us. And what was that conversation like? Oh, it 
the phone rang and it had the name of his colleague's son and I could hear crying and I was sort of like, oh, my God, what's happened, what's happened, thinking that it was his um, colleague's son ringing me. And then I realised it was Rob because he had no idea he was going to get handed the phone or have access to a phone. And, you know, he, he was just saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, this is not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. And, um, you know, um, I said, there's a lot of anger and none of it's directed at you at all. And, you know, he, he was worried because he, he thought that we didn't know where he was, whether he was alive or dead. Um, so it was a really, really harrowing, hard conversation. And Desiree, can you tell us a little bit about where Robert is exactly now and what his conditions are like? He was moved to where he is now on day 12 and uh, he's in a 14-foot room in a prison with 22 other men, um, including his colleague. And his colleague's the only one that speaks English. They have bunk beds which they squash up to one end of the room during the day and they sit on cushions on the floor. And they have two bathrooms with a toilet and a shower and a little kitchenette where they all prepare food for the whole lot of them. And they get outside for 20 minutes most days. He asked me to send 200 euros a fortnight through the government in Australia to the embassy in Iraq so that they can give that to him on their visits. And they're given a basic amount of food in the prison, but then they also pool in money to get extra meat and vegetables and fruit. And there's 23 of them in the room and four of them don't have access to outside cash. So this is four Iraqi citizens that are in jail with him. And so Robert's covering them too to make sure that everyone gets enough food. So he's an Australian in an Iraqi prison and he's helping to feed the Iraqi prisoners that are in there with him. That's the kind of guy he is. How does he feel in there? Is he scared, Desiree? He's scared, but where he is now is a hundred times better than where he was the first 12 days. And um, he's absolutely terrified. They, they literally are being used as pawns in a contract dispute. And they were trapped into coming over to Iraq. They were arrested. Um, they've had very little, they've had um, just under two hours of access to their lawyer in 77 days. They have no access to any of their paperwork or files. So they're getting asked questions that even relate to emails sent four years ago. And um, and there are no charges against them at all. So you can imagine the frustration and the, you know, the feelings of, um, oh, what's the word? Just, you know, he trusted these people. He worked really hard for these people and that betrayal and, and they've just betrayed him completely over money and trying to get out of a contract. At the moment, you have an hour long phone call with your husband each week. And this was organised for you by the Australian Embassy, am I correct? Yes, they go in to see him and give him a phone so that he can contact me. And then for the last two weeks, he's been allowed to have a five minute prison call, um, which his colleague has had access to the whole time. But um, Robert, as a Westerner, is not quite treated the same way. And what are those phone calls like, Desiree? Can you even describe speaking to your husband who is in these conditions and you only have this short time with him each week? 
a lot of the call at the beginning is going through what's happening on the outside um, to tell him what's happening, what we're up to, what we've been trying to do. Um, and then I run around the house and, and give the phone to the kids so that they can speak to him for a few minutes. Um, it's it's really hard. The last two weeks in particular, he's stopped talking about what's going to happen when he gets out because that's what we were doing with our daughter was um, because she's eight, we've been getting her to sort of talk to him about that she'd like to go to the beach and make sandcastles or, or she'd like to go canoeing during the summer. And for the last two weeks, he just will not engage in conversation about what will happen when he gets out. So he's losing hope. And like he's, you know, saying that he was crying on the phone when he first spoke to us, like I've never ever heard him cry like that and he's completely broken and he, he he went through horrendous time the first two weeks which we can't really go into detail of but it it was it was like any of the movies that you see with um with the american movies with torture and stuff it, it's just appalling and all the time when he was going to court and seeing the judge in those first two weeks and signing documents in Arabic, um, the judge would say to them, your integrity is not in question. You're only here to answer questions. You're not the target, and this will all be over soon. You, you two are very close, and he's a, a mentor for you as well. You, you must be missing, obviously you're missing your father, but and you're worried about him, but also missing that, that guidance at a pretty key point in your life. Yeah, it's it's kind of tough. Um, I genuinely see my dad as like a hero, like kind of the way that Peter Parker would see Iron Man. And uh, it's it's really like it hits you hard when you see your like the person that you see as your hero behind bars and taken down and all that when it's not necessarily justified in any sense. And it's just it's kind of tough coming towards these. Uh, final like times and the exams and everything and not having my dad being able to be in my corner. We're struggling. Um, it's getting harder all the time everywhere, especially each 10-day period. Like it's coming up to 80 days now. It's day 77 today. Um, and the weekends are particularly hard when everything's shut. Uh, our 18-year-old does his last exams today. He's not doing his final exam tomorrow, which is applied maths because uh, he just, he couldn't, he just can't. He's at the end. He's literally devastated about his father and he's put off university for a year. And um, yeah, I feel he's going to fall into a bit of a heap once he doesn't have to study for exams anymore. And then our 16 year old, and they just turned 16 and 18 a couple of weeks ago. Um, our 16 year old, we had to organize emergency counseling for, so he's getting counseling three times a week. So basically, I mean, the last few months, Desiree, for you and your family have been a nightmare that you can't even put into words right now. And you're appealing for help and you have been trying. Can you tell us a little bit about you and your attempts to contact both the Australian and the Irish governments and trying to communicate with the embassies involved? Yeah, um, well, the Australian government didn't actually go and see him until day 26. And uh, so I had a lot of struggles in the beginning with them and now they have started helping, um, although very slowly. 
the Irish government I reached out to and it was actually Irish friends that suggested that I reach out to them because myself and the, and the children are Irish citizens. And if this was a direct message to the Department of Foreign Affairs in Ireland right now, Desiree, what would you say to them? I just really feel that a public condemnation of this action will prevent any Irish engineers from ending up in the same position. When independent.ie contacted the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs in regards to Robert Pether's case, they sent a statement in response which read, As this case relates to an Australian citizen, the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs is the relevant consular authority. It would not be appropriate to comment on an ongoing consular case of an international partner. You are listening to In Focus, the current affairs podcast from independent.ie. Produced by Mary Carroll and sound design by Dara Kelly. You can subscribe to In Focus wherever you get your podcasts. And you can read news correspondent Evan Murray's latest on Robert's story in the Irish Independent and Independent.ie.